Bookstore UK, I'm Pommy Harmer. I'm Melissa Shemam and this is The Quarantini. As we dip in and out of lockdowns, we're bringing you this podcast to keep your spirits up. Every episode will bring you a mix of ingenious responses to the virus, an in-depth interview, and maybe a dash of the unexpected, which includes music and start with this beautiful track, Hot Flu, by the Oldbourne Collective. Thank you very much to my friend Seb Gutierrez for letting us using it. Hello and welcome back. Coming up in the show, this episode, we have an interview with Fiona Mann, who has been grappling with supporting pregnant asylum seekers and refugees through the pandemic. What a great job. And then we also have our usual roundup of good news. Our music this week is from Bristol's very own Jar Garvey, celebrating key workers everywhere. So now it's time for our interview. And in this episode, we hear from Fiona Mann, who started a project in Bristol called Project Mama. This amazing organisation supports pregnant refugees, asylum seekers and trafficked women. And volunteers who work for the project are trained to provide trauma-based support and work alongside the NHS. Now, some women get moved very late in their pregnancy by the Home Office Many have no language and all have very little idea of what they can expect from the NHS. And of course, COVID has made this all a lot worse. Here she is. Project Mama is an organisation in Bristol and we support women throughout pregnancy, labour and childbirth and early parenting. Um, We started in 2018, so we're coming up three in February, March time. About half of our clients are survivors of human trafficking and modern day slavery. But also we have supported women who are maybe arriving in the UK from a European country and they are lacking a birth support person or even people who are more settled on on like a spousal visa. Maybe they've been in the in the country several years. But when it comes to having a baby, it can be so much more kind of complexing if it's a healthcare system that you're not used to, or indeed if you don't have anyone and nurturing kind of consistent support by your side. So we really try and step in and provide that that continuity of support to women who wouldn't ordinarily have it. And I imagine that language must be an issue for many of the women you support. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So we use an interpreting service for around half of our clients. Some speak English already, many don't. And so having that time and space to sit down with, we use phone interpreters for for different reasons. We find that's the most effective way to really be able to sit down without time being an issue and unpack thoughts and feelings around birth without any constraints that perhaps uh, a medical member of staff might have and provide that kind of holistic, more holistic support around birth that's not so medicalized. But at the same time, we kind of unpack all that medical jargon as well, which again is understand is, is difficult to understand, sorry. Uh, as a native Brit, you know, yeah, I think I could do with a translator sometimes. <laughs> when you're going through pregnancy and when you're going through any health issues, I think you 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 come into contact with NHS services maybe for the first time and I I imagine it can be hard to navigate through that and keep your own ability to think clearly and that must be much harder if you're from a different country and you you wouldn't grow up with the 
with the knowledge of how the NHS works. Absolutely. And I think it can be overwhelming for anyone, especially considering, you know, you're having a baby, like hormonally, you're feeling different. Um, That's a difficult thing to navigate already, let alone having to navigate the complexities of, of immigration or being an asylum seeker, for example. Being an asylum seeker and being pregnant lends an extra vulnerability to your situation. So we have clients who who are referred to as at week 36 in their pregnancy because they've just been moved to Bristol by the home office at that stage in their in their journey, which is absolutely incomprehensible to think that you'd move to a new city that you've never been to before, don't know anyone, and then you're told that you have to book into the hospital and have your baby there potentially in two weeks' time without any idea about how to even get there in the first instance. So there our work really comes into its own so when we're offered these referrals we can really hit the ground running we can call people on day one of them being in the city and offer practical and emotional support throughout that that bit of their journey so why would that happen why would somebody be sent to bristol at 36 weeks pregnant where would they have been before that at the moment especially because of covid there's a real issue with the Home Office not having enough accommodation for people seeking asylum in the UK. Uh, And so temporary accommodation is being used that's not up to scratch. Um, I think we've all kind of heard bits in the news about army barracks being used, for example. And so because of COVID, nobody's been asked to move on from their Home Office accommodation, their NAS accommodation. And as such, there's a real backlog in housing. And the Home Office need to be providing a lot more housing for this some of it it just doesn't make sense like it's not joined up thinking like of course we hear that somebody's moved at 36 weeks in pregnancy and that seems absolutely mad to us but in terms of like emotive thinking or or um empathetic thinking sometimes it just doesn't seem to be that at home office level and these kinds of things happen where people are moved like one client had been in London for two years she had support networks in London and the home office moved her from her home office accommodation there and moved her over to Bristol and the reasons behind that like we don't know it seems very strange and that's when we signpost to solicitors to uh, to support with this. I mean how do you think the hostile environment affects the clients that you work with particularly around pregnancy? I mean hugely hugely psychologically it's incredibly challenging anyway like I said for anyone most of our clients have experienced some sort of gender-based violence exploitation or trauma and so the hostile environment is 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 an intentional thing that's been created like we've heard we've heard we've heard it branded about with pride by our government right so it adversely affects our client group because i think survivors any survivor of trauma is more it's sorry is less likely to voice their opinion or how they're feeling especially because the majority of our clients is that are like i just want to have the baby I can't, I don't have capacity to deal with anything else. And because those people aren't, and understandably so, making a fuss about it, it remains invisible. So the stuff, the work that's being done about it is 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 minimal. So that's really what we're trying to do at Project Mama, like plug that gap and obviously support a mum to feel nurtured and respected and have her baby. And then after the fact, when she's settled and she's eased into motherhood, then we can raise these issues with people that would like to talk to us uh, who, who just think like this is not 
this is not on. It's unacceptable to, to treat anyone like this, let alone somebody who's pregnant and also experiencing multiple disadvantage. Now, you mentioned the word doula earlier on. Tell us a little bit about the work of a doula and how it differs from being a midwife. Yeah. So midwives are obviously they have a huge medical knowledge. Um, the physiology uh, is obviously very important. Medical intervention is very important. That's not to say that all midwives practice in the same way. There's a huge disparity amongst midwives. But what doulas do is they are the holistic side of that. So um, they su- provide emotional support. They won't give offer any medical advice, but they're essentially a, a birth coach. And so they're there to be consistent side-by-side support for a mum, providing all of that amazing emotional support that women need. It really does kind of take a, a village. And birth traditionally has been something that has been practiced by the wise women or, or elders. Um, and it's only in in recent years, historically, that, that births taken place inside a hospital. So we don't actually use the term doula because some people identify as doulas within the project, other people don't. So we kind of um, rebranded this person as as a mother companion. We call them MCs. So we've got a team of 16 of us who attend births. And and I imagine because you are supporting people from a variety of backgrounds and countries, you need a diverse, you need diversity in your MCs how how easy is that to manage that's one of our challenges at the moment so our mummers having been through the project many are like I want to get involved I want to be that support be that woman um by somebody's side so we're designing a training program at the moment to to provide our own doula training basically or MC training um so women with lived experience can support women a group of women we've got right now are in a position where they can financially afford to volunteer because it's a huge time commitment being on call for a baby from 37, 38 weeks. You know, it's it's a huge ask. And so the idea is we've been doing some great work with refugee women of Bristol. And the idea is that moving forward, we're going to provide a really robust team of people with lived experience who speak the native language of, of our mamas. Um and so we can really practice in a culturally safe way. Turning to the pandemic, obviously we know what we've been through in the last year. What challenges have you had to face that have been on top of, of what you've faced normally? So initially, when this, the shelves started getting emptied back in March, um, clients were calling us saying, I've got two nappies left and there's no nappies in the shop and there's no wipes in the shop and there's no formula milk in the shop. Like I can't feed my baby. So bearing in mind that most of our clients are in asylum-seeking accommodation in, in inner-city Bristol, so the population is already incredibly dense, they're already struggling with potentially being a single mother, maybe having two children, and then they can't get nappies and wipes. So the team really came into itself here. Like Across the board, we all jumped into action, went to outlying supermarkets, bought formula, delivered, the, delivered it to, wipe, uh, to the clients, sorry, along with wipes and, and nappies. And during the the, the the whole pandemic, we were supporting up to 150 people a week with deliveries. A lot of people didn't speak English as a first language. And so all of this government legislation that's being fired out at people, like it doesn't mean anything to them. You know, it's, it's gobbledygook because we've also got our name out there across Bristol a little bit more. We've had a lot more 
um, referrals for the birth support. So we expected to support 20 women this year with a one-to-one birth support, but actually we're supporting our 43rd client now. So it's been an incredibly busy year, but also one of the most beautiful years as well in terms of solidarity and support and also the seeing the resilience and the strength of people bringing babies into the world against huge adversity is just an amazing amazing thing well you clearly do a fantastic job and and congratulations for setting this up and keeping it going through what must have been a doubly challenging time for this whole year and and the years to come but um, thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you so much for we having wish me. you well. Thank you so much. You guys too. Thanks so much to Fiona Mann. And now let's move on to our weekly roundup. What have you got for us, Melissa? Well, first, good news here in Bristol. You know what, Pummy? We are leading the way for vaccination. And the Southwest in general has really good news this week. The infection rate in Bristol has continued to fall. The number of COVID patients in local hospitals is also in decline. And the Southwest in general has the best vaccination rate in the UK. Uh, The United Kingdom in general has the third best vaccination rate in the world, with the NHS indeed sprinting to vaccinate the most vulnerable people. Overall, statistics also show that the lockdown is being effective, it is, but slower than previously. And that's according to Bristol Directors of Public Health. Great news. I know people who've been vaccinated now. Uh, Last time we recorded this podcast, I didn't know anybody. So, Melissa, I'm looking at you over Zoom and I don't see a single shelf of books behind (laughs) you. You need to get on trend. That's because they're all next to me, next to my desk, where I can grab them for me, but I don't need to just Well, apparently there's been a huge increase in the sales of books precisely for home offices during lockdown. And a Bristol-based company called Book Barn International sells and lends books for TV and film sets. They they do it. They do this in bulk. <laughs> these these and these books are featured in programs such as His Dark Materials. So anyway, this firm is now making up to ten sales a week to ordinary people like you and me who want a whole. Sometimes they want a whole oh shelf God. of books, and other times, according to the company, they want a whole home library. So this firm has almost a million books in stock at any one time, and customers create their own collections based on particular subjects, titles, or looks of the cover. And honestly, if you go on their website, you can see precisely what some people have done. Talk That's about ridiculous. Come on, know, for me. Floor to ceiling books, colour coded, I've seen. So let's be clear then. These people are renting the book just for them to be featured, right? When they're filmed, they don't read them, right? They don't read the books. No, they're just for show. <laughs> <laughs> My God, I just never thought this would be happening ever. <laughs> yeah, well, it definitely is now. Well, but it happens once to me, like, you know, I moved a lot and uh, I have a lot of books in Paris that I had to leave there. And my mom, she kind of moved my books in uh, her shelves and she just stored them all by by their size. By their and size? <laughs> by the size and the colour. And, you know, I am a bit obsessed of how my books are arranged because I have a lot of novels. And so it's like Russian novels, British novels, French novels. And I couldn't find anything. I was like, what were you thinking? It's well, not- how do you, you think- organise them? Well, 
but by the theme, yeah, 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 literature would be in one side, and then and then the country of origins, like you know, Russian novels, nineteenth uh, century novel, American literature, and then there would be like nonfiction on one side, and then my university books uh, on. You see what I mean? Like yes, I know yes. where they are because I I know what I need, and they fit together. Italian literature specifically goes like there's a pack of that, uh, and tons of books that I have in bilingual. Um, when I can't actually read probably Russian or Latin, but I still have them because I used to practice. But yeah, she she thought like the color and the size was the right way. So she's she's probably she could probably hire a. She's just looking at them from an aesthetic point of view, isn't she? So next kind time of. I come on Zoom with you, I want to see a little placard saying my books are next to me. <laughs> yeah, I should do that. Actually, I do read, but I have an iPad and all of my books are in Paris and the rest is just next to me. <laughs> oh, OK. Moving on. So I think with... you've got some more vaccine news, haven't you? Exactly. Still more news uh, here in the United Kingdom in general. Uh, healthy Young people now will be able to receive some COVID vaccine in some parts of England. And this is precisely because the vaccine short shelf life means that those not in vulnerable groups are sometimes given surplus doses, right? Because otherwise the, the vaccine couldn't be kept. So uh, surplus COVID-19 vaccines have been given to healthy young people. Uh, and uh, some GPs have also run out of eligible patients. So they've been able to vaccinate people in the scramble of um, to inoculate the country. Here are a couple of examples. A 30-year-old person in Sheffield, in no particular vulnerable group, was offered a jab on the ISIS day of the year, she said, in January. And she only had to get to the clinic within half an hour because of uh, weather-related cancellations. So the, the clinic just released a call. And in Manchester, a 24-year-old had had a spare of... Um, vaccination after volunteering at a vaccination centre, which I think is only fair. And in Reading, one clinic is calling local police stations and offering surplus jabs to officers at the end of the day. What a great way of making sure they're not wasted, because that would be a terrible thing, wouldn't it? Absolutely. So also in the north of the country is a saxophonist called Snake Davis. And he has been heralded by his local community for playing online, well, I suppose to anybody, but it's particularly for his his, lo his local friends and family. So he lives in Helmsley in North Yorkshire and with the help of his wife, Sally, and his son, Joe, he has been doing a live streaming sax gig every Friday and Sunday at seven o'clock. And when the first lockdown ended and he stopped doing those, he organised several gigs in his garden in in the garden of his local community hall. So that's amazing, isn't it? That's nice. So you said it was like more than 100 shows or something like that. It's insane. He has. He's done more than 100 shows. And I know that some artists really, really want to keep performing because it means they practice more. And some are thinking, oh, no, if we if we do this for free, then we'll never, ever be able to earn any money. Yes, I, I find that divide very strongly. I have a few friends, especially Bristol musicians, who are like on Facebook constantly, like live gigging and then partnering to do live events that are recorded and streamed. And a lot of other artists are like, it's not only not paying, but it's also like we abandoned the idea to go back to venues. 
So it's really hard to find what's right. I guess you have to do what feels right for you. And uh, maybe someone like a saxophonist, they, they're used to very small gigs as well. So may, maybe it doesn't feel that much different. I don't know. Um, I miss music. So I, I, I kind of, I, I had a lot of great time watching some of my favorite bands online, like The National. Do you like The National? They released so, so many mm. hours of recording that was made, like, obviously way b before the pandemic for most of them, right? It was like proper festival, beautiful, captured uh, recording of uh, some of the shows. And, um, yeah, of course, it feels great to, to hear this sort of atmosphere of live. But I would rather go back to especially small venues with a lot of physical distancing, but that's unlikely, right, until at least the summer. I think that is unlikely. So what have you got globally for us, Melissa? So globally, a, a lot of good news regarding our environment. It's been a great week for green renewable energy, Pommy, here in the UK, in the EU and beyond. In the EU in general, it shows a renewable overtake gas and coal like statistics uh, says that for the whole of the past year, especially a report by two think tanks, Amber and Agora, Energy Finden, which is probably German, um, renewables overtaking f fossils um, is an important milestone in Europe's clean energy transition, said Patrick Greichen, the director of that think tank. And the report also shows that Britain uh, green energy counted 42% of the UK electricity in 2020. Air pollution is also falling in a country like China, which is obviously much more massive, even than the, the whole of the EU. After extensive efforts, the whole of the past year to reduce um, carbon emissions. So that's quite a relief. It's such a good trend. And we know what it feels like, don't we? When we had the first lockdown, particularly, and the traffic was so, so much reduced. It was much cleaner to live in a big city like Bristol. Well done, the world. <laughs> well done, the world. And just finally, we moved to New York, where an 80-year-old woman called Diana Vino, who lives in a retirement community, um, has decided to start a newsletter. Where she lives, the managers, because of COVID, had to cancel the weekly book club and the bridge game and order everyone to stay in their rooms and then ban them from the communal gardens and, of course, banned all visitors. So Diana decided to launch her own local paper and distribute it to everybody. It's called The Buzz, and with the help of a copywriter friend who checked for errors, she produced 170 glossy copies of the first issue, and she pushed one under every resident's door. And she said, I think it was a surprise to some that I would start this at my age, but you're never too old. And the morning after the first edition arrived under everyone's door, she received 30 calls from people thanking her, many of them wanting to donate and help make the buzz a regular thing. And obviously it cuts down on loneliness, which must be a huge thing for very many old people all over the world. But part of its appeal also was that unlike most things in the COVID age, it didn't rely on technology. She said There's, they're 96-year-olds, many of them, and they don't have the internet. That's good, isn't it? I love these stories of people just deciding that they're not going to put up with the situation. They're going to do something creative about it. Yeah, that's brilliant. It's almost like her local quarantini, but without without using the internet. <laughs> it's the local quarantini. And we started this podcast precisely to 
highlight these stories and we're still finding them a year on. Yeah. It's great. Well, wonderful. Anyway, let's finish with the music. So this week we have a reggae artist, Jar Garvey. He is also known as first bus driver Roger Brady. He lives in Bristol. He drives the 48 and 49 buses which go right past my door and he often sings to his passengers. Aww. Um He was born in Jamaica, he moved to Bristol in 2001 and he combines his work as a bus driver with his music career. His latest album, Brand New Day, was released in 2020 in November and with the video accompanying the little track celebrating key workers who've carried on working through the pandemic. It is a really good video to watch. It's a brand new day, yes, it's another working time I'm on the grind, I'll be earning mine Garvey singing Brand New Day, celebrating all the key workers who have continued working through the coronavirus pandemic. That's it for the Quarantino this week. We'll be back next time with a new cocktail of ideas, music and positive news for you all. In the meantime, we'd really love to hear from you, so don't hesitate to hold of us like by emailing us, for instance, at thequarantinipodcast at gmail.com. And you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. This episode was hosted by me, Melissa Shaman, And was hosted and produced by me, Pomi Harma. Thanks for listening. And stay safe. Yes, it's a brand new day. Yes, it's another working time. I'm on the grind, I'll be